Good morning. This is Jean Abshire with the International Power Hour. We are happy to uh, be here this morning. We have uh, an exciting show, I think. We um, had a guest on campus last spring, a poet of witness, um, as as, uh, she's called, named Carolyn Forche. And uh, Cliff was unable to... uh, uh, be there for the interview. Uh, but, uh, Quinn Dower from history stepped in and we're going to present that to you this morning. Um, uh, Carolyn Forche, did I say her, <laughs> did I say her name? Um, again, poet of witness, uh, has just come out with a, a memoir called what you have heard is true, a memoir of written of witness and resistance in which she shares her experiences in El Salvador in the 1970s and 1980s. And, um, Cliff is going to, we're going to talk about that and give some context and then, um, and then present the interview. Uh, yes, if if the interview she uh, spent uh, initially goes to El Salvador in uh, um, 1978. So I thought we would talk a little bit uh, just to kind of give you some update as to what El Salvador looked like in 1978 and how it got there. So you have some context for for her wonderful book. And I would strongly recommend it. Now, it's not for the faint of heart. She's very blunt and she witnesses atrocities that are uh, beyond imagination. But nonetheless, if you look at the history of El Salvador, I'm going to quote. A, uh, a U.S. military attache from 1931. Here's his, here's his description of El Salvador. He says, 30 to 40 families own nearly everything in the country. They live in almost regal splendor. The rest of the population has practically nothing. In many ways, that uh, encapsulates um, much of the history of El Salvador. You have a country that uh, has an extreme income or economic inequality, has historically had extreme inequality and still today has extreme inequality. The gap between the rich and poor is the highest in all of Central America and all of Latin America. That's saying something. Yes. And then the second characteristic is the um, is violence, Uh, Mm -hmm. violence against the poor, against uh, the working class, against any attempt at labor unions, against, uh, at least until uh, uh, the end of the Civil War, against those that were considered to be on the political left. So two characteristics to keep in mind, extreme inequality uh, and um, largely, uh, and, and then the, the violence against, against many of the poor. In fact, uh, one of the most significant events in history is in January 1932. Of course, this is the Depression. Now, you have to keep that in mind. But nonetheless, a man by the name of Farabundo Marti led a peasant uprising. And the military stepped in and basically executed 30,000 peasants. Wow. And Martin himself. Okay, it's called La Matanza, the killing. And so, uh, and sorry, <laughs> my phone went off. I'm sorry. Anyway, so for many years until 1979, uh, the country was run by what uh, some people call uh, Las Catorce Familias, the 14 families. They're coffee-growing families. I actually was with uh, uh, my mentor in grad school, and we interviewed one of these families, and they basically 
that they owned El Salvador, they made El Salvador, and they would keep El Salvador the way it is. Uh, so uh, this agro-export model um, in terms of exporting coffee depended upon land, access to land, which meant protecting their land and you have to remember by 1979 uh the the, the coffee growers the elites the top one percent owned about 98 percent of of the land arable land anyway so again tremendous tremendous inequality and they protected that uh, through their ties to the government and the military of course that type of 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 economy also depends on labor. You have to have labor to work these large plantations. And so labor laws, long history of labor laws, tying people to the land to force, force them to work on the plantations here. So and in a course, sense, protecting their land also meant um, protecting cheap labor. Absolutely. Which meant keeping people Absolutely. down yeah. and limiting their and economic then, opportunities. And then, of course, they had they had, this is this is the economy that drives the country, and they had to have access to external markets. So all of this, again, is kind of the history of it. By the late by the mid seventies, you began to see actually early seventies um, guerrilla groups, revolutionary groups appear. Nineteen seventy nine is significant because. And this is when Forche is arriving in in uh, El Salvador. This is when you had five for the five revolutionary groups merged together uh, to create the Farbundo Marti National Liberation Front, the FMLN. So these groups merged together, and it's this this group, the FMLN, that waged the, the guerrilla war throughout the 1980s and was, was then opposed by the government, whether it's the right-wing government or the center governments, and the military and paramilitary squads. And so you get this very brutal conflict, which she then uh, talks about it in, in her book uh, in which she was invited uh, by this mysterious friend, which she'll talk about, uh, uh, to, um, to come and be witness to the atrocities taking place. But not only that, it was, it was not only the atrocities of the government, it was the fact that the United States was complicit in 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 these in these atrocities in terms of supporting uh the right supporting the governments training the military and turning a blind eye to to the atrocities whether it's atrocities against against uh poor against women against priests against nuns uh anyone considered on the left w w was a target and the united states u.s tax dollars uh played a major role in this by the mid-1980s el salvador next to Egypt and Israel was the largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid. So all of this kind of, I wanted to just kind of set the scene uh, for the, uh, for the, for the uh, recording. And I'm not sure, are we, Jane, you want, yeah, you want yeah. to play the recording at this point? Yeah, I think we can um, go to that. Uh, she doesn't share a lot of the most um atrocious things in the recording, just so so listeners know. Um, the book has much more vivid detail. Um, we are going to, we'll, we'll uh, take like a few seconds of break and then we'll be back with the recording. No, 
Our dedicated international studies faculty teach classes from a variety of disciplines and will provide you with personalized attention in exciting classes ranging from history and political science to modern languages and many more. Follow your passion and find out more information about an international studies degree at ius.edu. You're listening to the best college radio station, Horizon Radio, broadcasting from Indiana University Southeast, New Albany. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the International Studies Department at IU Southeast, where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international dash studies. Welcome to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. We have a special uh, event today. We have with us um, an amazing poet named Carolyn Forche. She is a poet of witness, um, which means she has, I should actually let you explain it. <laughs> He explained it, um, but we'll come to that, actually. Um, she is uh, here to talk with us about her experiences in El Salvador. Um, I think many of our political science listeners may not necessarily associate poetry or other arts with politics, um, but poetry is profoundly political, and I mean, or it can be, um, as well as other forms of art. And we will talk more about that um, as we go, or even potentially another day. Um, but I wanted to begin uh, by illustrating, actually, um, just how political poetry can be by asking Carolyn to read one of her poems from 1978 called The Colonel. So welcome to the International Power Hour, Carolyn. Oh, I'm also here with Quinn Dower, I should say. Sorry, Quinn. That's okay. <laughs> you know, when I have to run the board and talk, it's just a mess. <laughs> anyway. It's all right. <laughs> so thank you to you both for being here. And Carolyn, please, if you would, The Colonel. Sure. Thank you. The Colonel, what you have heard is true. I was in his house. His wife carried a tray of coffee and sugar. His daughter filed her nails. His son went out for the night. There were daily papers, pet dogs, a pistol on the cushion beside him. The moon swung bare on its black cord over the house. On the television was a cop show. It was in English. Broken bottles were embedded in the walls around the house to scoop the kneecaps from a man's legs or cut his hands to lace. On the windows there were gratings like those in liquor stores. We had dinner, rack of lamb, good wine. A gold bell was on the table for calling the maid. The maid brought green mangoes, salt, a type of bread, I was asked how I enjoyed the country. There was a brief commercial in Spanish. His wife took everything away. There was some talk then of how difficult it had become to govern. The parrot said hello on the terrace. The colonel told it to shut up and pushed himself from the table. My friend said to me with his eyes, say nothing. The colonel returned with a sack used to bring groceries home. He spilled many human ears on the table. They were like dried peach halves. There is no other way to say this. He took one of them in his hands, shook it in our faces, dropped it into a water glass. It came alive there. 
I am tired of fooling around, he said. As for the rights of anyone, tell your people they can go f themselves. He swept the ears to the floor with his arm and held the last of his wine in the air. Something for your poetry, no, he said. Some of the ears on the floor caught this scrap of his voice. Some of the ears on the floor were pressed to the ground. San Salvador, May 1978. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I read that not nearly as well, but I read that to some of my students last week, actually, in my Introduction to International Relations class, because we were talking about human rights. Um, and... <laughs> Even not again, not reading as beautifully as you. There, I mean, they were there was silence in the room. They found it really, really powerful. Um, and you know, I, I don't. I, I think we can just sort of set aside any question that it, whether or not poetry is politics, because that's that's amazing. Um, so you have a new memoir out talking about. Uh, your experiences in this time in El Salvador. Um, the, the title of it for our listeners is What You Have Heard is True, and it is an amazing movie-like read. Um, I mean, I feel like you should get a movie deal out of this because it is like, I mean, it's a, it reads like a thriller. It's, uh, I cannot imagine some of those experiences, truly. My um, friends are enjoying themselves trying to cast it. <laughs> so they're always making suggestions, you know, of who should play me and who should play well, Leonel. I don't you? have a pick. I don't have a pick. <laughs> she has to be quite young, much younger than I am now. You were young, which is, I mean, I that's an, another thing. I mean, I... I I, I, I can't even, I mean, you were tw in your late 20s, right? I was 27 Seven. years old. Uh, yeah. I went for the summer with my friend Maya to stay with her mother in Spain. Uh, we, we had taken it upon ourselves to translate her mother's poetry for the first time into English. Her mother was Claribel Alegría, now a very well-known poet from Central America, who was living at that time in, in voluntary exile. And... I began translating her when I was living in San Diego, California, where I was teaching, but I was having trouble, and not because of language familiarity, really. It had to do with uh, my lack of understanding of the context out of which her poems arose, and that context was 50 years of military dictatorship, which, mm -hmm. of course, involved political killings, uh, torture, detention, disappearance, and I really couldn't distinguish literal from figurative language. I, mm -hmm. I didn't have a vocabulary for these things. And so I was about to give up when Maya said, why don't you come with me? We'll stay with mommy over the summer and we can, you can ask her the questions and she'll explain the poems to you and then you'll be able to translate them. So with some reluctance, because I'd never been to Europe before and didn't know whether I would be able to afford it, I went with her and spent the summer there and, and learned a great deal because there were a number of writers from uh, all over Latin America who passed through that house over the summer in Deia, Mallorca. They were fleeing the dirty wars in Argentina and Chile, Paraguay, Uruguay. Uh, so I met a number of them, and, and every afternoon they would sit on the terrace and uh, 
at sunset and have discussions about literature and politics, increasingly more about politics. And I, would, I was on the edge of these discussions, soaking it up and trying to follow them and trying to understand. And my Spanish was coming along. And to my horror, I realized that my own government was behind these regimes and that uh, it was the U.S. government that was responsible for making a lot of this possible. Mm -hmm. And I was a young, you know, 27-year-old. I knew that you know, we'd had the war in Vietnam and I, I, I wasn't completely naive, but I was naive about this hemisphere and about the extent of U.S. government involvement in support of murderous military dictatorships Yeah, at that time. So one thing that struck um, both Quinn and myself, yeah. and, and actually uh, Cliff, my normal co-host, because he and I talked about it too. So Quinn um, is not a normal Quinn is, Quinn is a, <laughs> No, I, I, am, I am solely okay, a substitute today. He's normal, not okay. regular. <laughs> okay. But an excellent, an excellent sit-in. So again, I thank you for that. Um, but uh, early on in your book, you just you describe um, your trip to Spain um, uh, beautifully. Uh, I, to quote you, if if I may, um, I wrote in my notebook of a road awash in light of Spanish brandy and black tobacco, and a dictator dead but still awake in the in the minds of people. I was at the time quite young with a romantic view of the world, and I was also an American, which made it worse. Many of our audience um, members are are young, um, college students, and I think that resonated with us, especially in yeah. view of of their youth. So you've you've said a little bit um, right there, but can you kind of reflect a little bit more on on youthfulness and understanding of the world, and also that um, you know that it, what made it worse? I was an American. Well, that's the part that became interesting for me because what I realized was I had met a lot of other young people my age from different countries in Europe and from different countries in Latin America. And they all seemed to know a lot more about the rest of the world than Americans did, than I did, or than any of my friends did, partly because in our educational system in the United States, we don't really focus on the rest of the world. And it's peculiar, but we have a kind of uh, xenophobic attitude. We're isolated. We have a, a very large and populous country to the south, Mexico. Mm -hmm. we, you know, we have a very large trading partner to the north, Canada, but we don't even have much to do with them on a cultural level day to day. You know, we don't, unless you're right on the borders. So... I, I think my naivete was more pronounced because I had grown up in the United States. And, you know, the, the German st students and the French students had a very much more sophisticated view of things yeah. than I did. And it was embarrassing, actually, you know, to be found wanting in this cohort of people who were my age. I um, did study abroad for a year in Germany in the mid to late 1980s, um, actually two years. Um, and yes, I did you have that experience, very similar yeah. things. I just and I mean, I I grew up in a fairly politically aware household, but nevertheless, there was there are gaps. Uh, oh, yeah, I was completely ignorant the first time I went abroad to Latin America particularly when I started taking Spanish classes and um, we started reading literature and poetry, um, Neruda, Borges, you know, all of the, the, 
big boom authors of the 20th century, but back into the into the 19th century as well. And all of a sudden, this whole world I had no idea that was just south of the Rio Grande was was suddenly opened up to me, and I felt very very ignorant, especially talking to the the Latin Americans in, in a number of my classes. There was an interesting thing that I I was just in Vietnam and. A very interesting thing happened um, when the when the U.S. American soldiers who had fought in Vietnam first started returning there to make trips and to meet their counterparts among Vietnamese writers. It turns out the Viet the Vietnamese soldiers, former soldiers, asked the Americans, "Well, what Vietnamese writers did you read when oh. you were young?" And of course, they had read all of our writers. Yeah. They knew Thoreau. They knew Whitman. They and the the U.S. American soldiers confessed that they hadn't a clue about any Vietnamese writers. Couldn't name and they one, were, could not name one and yeah. had not read any. And uh, it, it turned out that actually the Vietnamese studied us. Mm -hmm. We did not study them. They wanted to know everything about us. We weren't curious about them. So when I was first um, invited to El Salvador, I can tell, I'll tell that story if you like, but um, it, it was because uh, the person who invited me wanted, wanted to study an American, I think, finally. He wanted to know how would I react and what did I think and how possible was it for him to change my way of thinking? What experiences would change it? Is it possible for a U.S. American to open her eyes to a different understanding of the world? And how would that happen? Which is fascinating, I think. Um, and obviously... I guess the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, he was he was studying the uh, Americans because he said, you you know, Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam studied the French and, right. you know, very yeah. deeply. And the Vietnamese studied the Americans when they had to fight the Americans, but it wasn't reciprocal. So I went back from to from Spain to my teaching job in San Diego State University and I was teaching freshman composition, and so I always had papers to grade, and I was home alone one day and grading papers, and I heard a vehicle in my driveway. I wasn't expecting anyone. I looked outside, and it was a vehicle I didn't recognize, and it had El Salvador license plates. Well, I didn't know anyone who lived in El Salvador. Yeah. I only knew people who had fled El Salvador, and a man was getting out of the vehicle with a big bag of papers over his arm, and then two little girls got out, so I felt a bit better. And he crossed my neighbor's house to come to my house. Mine was in the back. So he he wasn't randomly choosing a house to knock on the door of. Right. He was ringing my doorbell. And when I finally did open it, and I describe all of that in the book, um, and he introduced himself, he said, you are Carolyn Forche, and I am Leonel Gomez Vidas. And I remembered that I'd heard that name several times in Spain. He was a cousin of Claribel Alegria, who still lived in El Salvador, and he was a very mysterious person to them. Yes. And they didn't quite know who he was. They said he was a world champion marksman. He was a motorcycle racing champion. He had given some of his land away to the campesinos, and maybe he was with the guerrillas, but some people thought he worked for the CIA. So, um, That's a lot they, of mystery. and whenever I would ask a question about him, everyone would be very quiet. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, we can't talk to her about this. So as it turns out, my my friend Maya had sent him my first book of poetry with a letter, and he had come to spend three days at my house uh, with his daughters to talk to me about the situation in El Salvador and in Central America in general. Um, he said, my country's going to be at war in three to five years. And your country's policy regarding that war is going to make a decisive difference. So he said, I need help. I, I want to invite a poet. I want to invite you as a poet to come now to El Salvador and to see the country um, and as much as you can. I will show you every sector of society. You can learn as much as you can in as short a time as you have. And when the war begins, you'll be in a position to explain it to the American people. So I tried to explain to him how the American people view poets, you know, that I would not be someone they would necessarily consult on foreign policy issues. And I wouldn't have any credibility at all as a poet because we were regarded as a kind of fringe element in the society. Anyway, most people couldn't name a living poet and poets weren't taken that seriously. That surprised him. Mm. He said, oh, he said, well, we don't have that situation in Latin America. Right. Right. We take our poets very seriously. And then he made what I thought was a joke, but turned out not to be much of a joke. He said, we, we send them to diplomatic posts or we put them in prison, but we take them seriously. Right. <laughs> so he said, you're just going to have to change that. You're going to have to get North Americans to pay attention to poetry. So I thought, well, that's okay. Yeah. It sounds like a daunting a task. <laughs> so he had this invitation and, you know, he, he said a lot of things to me that, um, that I think, well, he was pushing all my buttons, you know, I'd always wanted to join the Peace Corps. And he said, this can be like a Peace Corps, he said, out of the book. <laughs> and things like that he was saying. So he said, but it will be a reverse Peace Corps because you will not be helping me. I will be helping you to understand the world. So, well, after three days, he left having, you yeah. know, extended this invitation. And I, I just received a Guggenheim grant. And so I was, I had the freedom to go where I wanted and, you know, and he, um, so I asked all my friends what I should do. I described him. I described the three days of history of him drawing the illustrations for everything he talked about, beginning with the conquistadores and the conquest right. of, of Latin America and ending with helicopters flying over the mountains he had drawn and, it's amazing. And all of my friends said, you can't do this. You don't know this man. It's crazy. What do you think? It's crazy, right. <laughs> they said, you're going to get malaria or you're going to get killed. This is nuts. Even Claribel Alegría doesn't really know who he is. So, right. and, and so finally, one of my friends said, I think you want to go. I think you should do it. And he was the first person to say that. So, of course, right away I made my reservations and <laughs> had my ticket. And when I landed at Ilopango, which is the old airport, um, that was January 4th, 1978. I was alone. It was late at night. And when I got through customs and all of that, Lionel wasn't there. No one was there. That's a great beginning. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, not for the last time, thought maybe I should go home now. But uh, then suddenly a, a tall man was coming through the parking lot and he said, you're Carolyn Forche. And I said, oh, yes. He said, <laughs> Thank God. he said, I'm John Taylor, Peace Corps. Lionel sent me to pick you up. 
And so he threw my suitcase in the back of his pickup and off we went. The other Peace Corps. Yeah. The other, <laughs> the real Peace Corps. As I tease him now, he's the real Peace Corps volunteer. Um, but I made seven extended journeys to El Salvador between 1978, January 4th, and March 16th, 1980. Most of this book takes place during that period of time. There are earlier episodes and later episodes, but most of it takes place then. And I wrote it. I tried to write it in such a way that someone else could go on the journey that I took. The reader never knows more than I knew yeah. at the time. I don't come back into the present and explain anything. Yeah. I just take your hand and take you through it. This is what happened. This is what it felt like minute to minute. And this is what I saw. And this is what I understood from it. And so it took me 23 years to start writing this book, mm -hmm. and it took me 15 more years to write it. It was really the most difficult thing I'd ever done because it had to be right. Yeah. And uh, it had to accomplish what I needed it to accomplish. But I had promised Archbishop Romero, Monsignor Oscar Romero, and I had promised Leonel that someday I would write about these things. And, you know, it, it had been many years and I, w I was, time was running out. I realized I had to do it. So I finished it in uh, August uh, 2018. There's uh, a lot in there. No, I finished it August 2017. Sorry. Okay. That's, I mean, that's a, you went through amazing, terrible things. Um, and so I imagine to, to sort back through it all and to, to recount it with the vividness and, you know, the detail and the, the richness that you have, um, that was probably really hard. Those years are very vivid in my life, in my memory. Yeah. Um, unlike some other years that have just right. evaporated, but I have a kind of strange recall of, of that time. And so I wrote from memory, but I also had a lot of notebooks and photographs and clippings and all sorts of things. Yeah. I had even objects, you know, from there, uh, a bullet that had lodged in my husband's camera lens. And wow. I had a, a supper plate that was all shot full of bullet holes. And I had a lot of things. Mm. And I surrounded myself with all of these boxes and notebooks and sank into the work. And it was... Um, it, it, I said in a little film my son made, it was like going into a tunnel, yeah, going into a, a dark tunnel and having no way out, but through, you know, I had to keep going and oh. not only remember it all, but when you're writing this kind of prose, you have to remember it and you have to live through it again because you're trying to react, you're trying to reactivate it and, and transform it and make it occur again on the page. And that got difficult. Mm -hmm. And there are some passages toward the end that I postponed and procrastinated on for a long time. And finally, I was procrastinating a lot about going through some of these things. And I realized that if I wasn't willing to do that, if I wasn't willing to write about those things, I had to give up on this. And I had to put it aside and admit to myself that I couldn't do it. So I, I went on a writer's retreat in August of 2017. I was at Hedgebrook on Whidbey Island off the coast of Seattle. And I gave myself two weeks. Oh, wow. Finish it or put it away. And on Thursday of the second week, 
I finished it. I couldn't believe it. You know, wow. that, it, yeah. I think it was pressuring myself that way, but um, it was finally done and I was released from this in a, you know, in a strange way. But it was also something that I now believed would be useful to young people mm -hmm. who are, as I was, idealistic and would like to, you know, work in human rights and social justice. And it will be useful for Salvadorans whose parents brought them here when they were young and whose parents don't really want to talk about these things right. with them. And, you know, I wanted to set the record straight for my son, what had happened to mm -hmm. his parents, because I met my husband there. Mm -hmm. And um, so what we both had gone through. And uh, and it was a, also fulfilling a deep obligation that I felt toward Leonel Gomez Vidas and toward Monsignor Oscar Romero, that I would, that I would tell everything someday. I couldn't have written this during the war. There was the 12-year civil war yeah. that followed my departure from the country um, because the people in the book were in the war. Right. And, right. and then after that, there, there were various reasons why I had to mature. I had to get perspective. I had to give it some time. You know, and finally, uh, a young refugee from Ukraine, a poet mm -hmm. named Ilya Kaminsky, said, you know, it's time. You have to do it. You have to do it now. So as I was writing it, uh, my father even said to me, you know, this is so far in the past. Why are you writing about this? It's so far away. And I thought so too. I thought, you know, this is distant in time. No one is going to be interested in this anymore. And then, and then the full disintegration of El Salvador yeah. um, and Honduras and Guatemala mm -hmm. uh, in the aftermath of the war in El Salvador, uh, it most particularly began to accelerate and the society uh, was um, rife with corruption mm -hmm. and with um, preyed upon by gangs, by narco traffickers, by human traffickers and by uh, money launderers. And El Salvador became a kind of um, warehousing and transport operation for international narco-trafficking. So um, on every level, El Salvadoran society disintegrated. It collapsed. People talk about failed states. They talk about narco-states. Right. That was really what you were looking at. And, and so what it means is that common, ordinary people, poor people, working people, were preyed upon by gangs, by organized crime, in, on their own streets, in their own villages, in their own neighborhoods. Um, they were forced to pay money or have all of the members of their family killed and killed brutally and terribly. Uh, you know, they escalated the manner of this killing. And so finally, people were so terrified that they began picking their children up in their arms with a little rucksack of nothing and right. running north. And they nothing they could imagine on that journey on foot through the desert and through Mexico to our border, and nothing they could imagine at our border could possibly be more frightening than what they were running away from. People don't leave their homes. They don't leave everyone they've ever known. They don't leave their grandparents' graves and their neighbors and friends and and pick up their kids with nothing and go on foot right. unless something is scaring them to death. And that's who we have at our borders, families who are scared to death. And why are they scared? The story begins, I, I tried to write it in what you have heard is true, 
I tried to write the beginning of the story. Why is this happening? Here's how it started. And I hope it sheds light on it. And I wish to say these are not migrants. They're refugees. We signed international agreements under international law. We have an obligation to help them, to take care of them, to allow them to apply for asylum, to allow their cases to be heard, and not to be placed in detention while this process is going on. I, I think I think the book does a very good job of connecting um, U.S. policy um, to the military regimes in El Salvador yeah. and the way in which the U.S. Um, just perpetuates that um, repeatedly over, over the years. Uh, I think that does a very good job of shining light on that. Our, our policies are usually short-sighted, and they have to do with our own very short-sighted interests, and not even the interests of the American people, but the interests of whatever businesses are operating in those regions or countries. So things fall apart because they're not really very intelligent policies to begin with, and, and they're, not, they're not imagining the long-term consequences. So they even have slang for this, blowback, you know. Isn't it a good idea to give this militia or that militia weapons, and then mm -hmm. someday this militia or that militia is planting bombs in our own country? You see, I mean, that... Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Again and again mm -hmm. and again. That we, happens repeatedly. Yes. Always consistently short-sighted foreign policies. That's right. Exactly. And and the policies shift every few years when, uh, when the administration changes, and right. then there's a slight difference in the approach. But it hasn't differed that much from one administration to another. You know, the, the wrongheadedness of the policies have been pretty consistent. So thinking about a young audience who uh, is interested in going out in the world, and this looking at the time, I think this will have to be our last, our last little bit here. I went super fast. <laughs> but uh, thinking about a, a young audience uh, who you know, many of them are interested in going out into the world and experiencing a lot of things and, and helping people. What kind of responsibilities do you think that people who, who witness injustices, maybe not as extreme as the human rights abuses that you witnessed, but maybe, um, what kind of responsibilities do you think that they have? Well, I think one of the um, profound responsibilities is the responsibility to bear witness, the responsibility to say what you've seen, to speak out. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk, especially on campuses now, about who has the right to tell a story, you know. Um, people have asked me, well, how, how do you get around the fact that you're not Salvadoran, <laughs> you know? And I say, well, I'm lucky because I wrote only about my own experiences and what I saw and did and felt. Um, so I didn't have the problem of trying to become someone else. Um, but I, I say to them, you have two options. You can keep everything to yourself or you can try to speak up. And I choose not silence. I choose speaking up. I also think you have to be very careful to be precise and to be accurate and um, to verify where you can, uh, what's happening. It's a good idea to communicate with organizations that have been active in, for example, in human rights in 
certain regions in in Latin America. That would be the Organization of American States Human Rights Commission, Amnesty International. There are many, um, but it, it's a good idea to to begin. You could begin by volunteering for those organizations and to learn, you know, how are human rights atrocities documented and. And really, the most important part is to learn how to bring the sin to the eye. How to how to how to how to kindle the conscience of a people. What would make a U.S. American care, you know? And what would move them to feel differently about something? Normally, U.S. Americans care when the story is very personal, when they can connect with one person. And so they'll make all kinds of statements about the, the group, you know. But then there's this one woman, and she's different because she, I know her, and, you know, her name is Maria, and she worked for me, and she's different than all the people that I want to distance myself from and forget about. So... I think that the key to U.S. Americans to reaching them is to try to help them to multiply their one person and, you know, to understand that their one person is actually many people. And if we're going to call ourselves good and moral and decent and ethical or whatever you want to say, if you want to live that way, if you want to have lived that way, then you have to live in accordance with your principles. So I think being consistent with one's principles and honoring them and being brave. You know, sometimes you have to do something that costs you a little or a lot. Or, you know, you have to be willing to stand up and do what you think is right in any given moment, regardless of how popular it is or how, um, or how you'll be judged for it in the, in the short term. Well, you have been very, very brave. And I appreciate that you have shared with us here um, some of your experiences. I appreciate that you have um, shared them through your art and also now through your memoir. Um, Thank you. Your voice is important and, um, you know, you have the ability to, um, you know, kindle the conscience. Thank you. As you have said. So this is the International Power Hour. We thank you for joining us. And thank you to Quinn for, for joining me. And again, thank you, Carolyn Forche. Thank you very much. Broadcasting from IU okay. Southeast, New Albany, the voice of the Grenadiers can be heard anywhere, anytime by visiting IUSHorizonRadio.com. Welcome back to uh, IU Southeast Horizon Radio um, International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here with my co-host, Cliff Staten. We were just listening to an interview that uh, Dr. Quinn Dower and I did with Poet of Witness Carolyn Forche um, last spring, talking about uh, her experiences in the late 1970s and 1980 in El Salvador. And uh, Cliff, toward the end of the interview, not at the very end, but toward the end, she talked about um, basically the legacy of what she experienced and the civil war that um, the 12 year long civil war that immediately followed um, in terms of where where El Salvador is today. Um, she mentioned a failed state. She mentioned um, corruption and, and narco gangs and tremendous amounts of violence. Um, would you want to comment a little bit more on that? Sure. Um, this is the third time I've heard her interview, and um, you know she really does a good job in terms of uh, making the transition from what our students might call something 
historical uh, and not seeing the relevance of it today. Uh, but the, the Civil War, which, uh, you know, I could spend, you have taken my Latin American politics class, but the Civil War in El Salvador uh, for 12 years, you had 100,000 lives taken, 8,000 people disappeared, 500,000 displaced, 500,000 fled the country. Uh, all of this, Terrible. and ultimately, ultimately, in many ways, uh, both sides got tired of killing each other. I know that's a terrible way to put it, but it, 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 if you read the literature that what brought the war to an end, first of all, it, it helped that we had the Bush administration, that the, the Reagan administration uh, fully funded uh, the Arena the Party, the right-wing party, the death squads, and so on, and fueled much of, much of the Civil War. Uh, the Bush administration changed the policy, and essentially you had a peace process come about in 1992. Now, the interesting thing about that is they did set up a Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Now, I don't know if our audience is familiar with these, but these are uh, are set up uh, with the idea of, of letting the people kind of uh, come together and talk about the, one, the atrocities that have taken place to assess, uh, to try to assess some accountability as to who was to blame and so on and so forth. And while they, this was put in place, the Arena Party, which is the right-wing party representing primarily the elites and the business folks in El Salvador, uh, basically uh, none of those folks have ever been prosecuted. Mm -hmm. They barred them from being prosecuted. So underneath the surface, you've got this, this, this wound that has never been um, uh, covered, never been healed. In that sense, yeah. uh, so and, and you see this in the history of, of Chile with the military government there and Argentina, the they saw they saw those disappeared ones and all this. This is very common in much in Latin America during this history here. But nonetheless, the war, the civil war, does come to an end, and we go through a period where, and if you read the literature on El Salvador, it's interesting, and I'll I'll try to be brief here. But you've got on one hand, you have had for the most part elections at the local, regional, and presidential level that have taken place from 1992 through this past summer. And you've had... From, so it looks uh, democratic, at least on the surface. There's a formal democracy mm -hmm. in place. From 1989 to 2009, the, the right-wing Arena Party ruled the country. From 2009 to 2019, the FMLN representing the left, this was part of the pink tide in Latin America that we talk about, uh, ruled the country. And the, the interesting thing is that now you have a president who represents a centrist party combination of both of them. In many ways, it's a recognition that both of those, both of those parties have really failed, failed El Salvador. Uh, the poverty is endemic and so on and so forth. But to lead into our discussion next week on immigration, mm -hmm. what happened during the Civil War is many of the young men who fought on both sides, part of the death squads and part of the, the rebels, revolutionary groups, many of them fled the country and went to the United States. Mm. And they ended up in large cities. And in particular, I'm going to mention Los Angeles, mm -hmm. not because specifically, you know, you hear President Trump talk about MS-13 uh, and as, as a gang. OK, well, this gang was formed by Salvadorans in Los Angeles. 
about 30 years ago, okay? Uh, and by the way, the, the Spanish term in El Salvador for gang is Martas, M-A-R-A-S. Okay? Which is the source of the M, right? Right, yes. M- MS-13 was actually formed by these immigrants in Los Angeles about 30 years ago. Now, there's another one you don't hear about, which is known as Barrio 18, uh, and also formed in Los Angeles. Okay, and these were these were gangs. Many of them committed crimes, and so by the mid to late '90s, we began deporting them back to El Salvador. Now, most of these folks had seen violence growing up in El Salvador. They go to L.A., they become part of a gang and this violent culture. Now they're shifted back to El Salvador, and many of them, a place they they barely knew or Mm -hmm. recognized, and they knew nothing but fighting and violence and gang membership. And so what happened is that they recreated the gangs in many of the cities throughout El Salvador. And today, 96% of, of the cities have either uh, a version of MS-13 or Barrio 18. And by the way, these are two gangs that hate each other. Mm-hmm. They're, they're still at war with each other. And you can there are certain maps, and we can talk about this next week, uh, uh, where you see uh, where MS-13 dominates and where Barrio 18 dominates. But nonetheless, they, they, they uh, locally, it's the government has basically been incapable of dealing with these gangs. And so at the local level, the average person is caught in the middle. Mm-hmm. The gangs will force, uh, they will, quote, protect businesses from the other gang. But of course, they have to pay money up front for that. Or even if you're walking from one district to the next uh, or traveling, they control the buses. They, they get tribute paid for the buses so they'll be protected and so on. So like every part of people's regular daily lives is it's touched a, by this. This is Absolutely. They can't just put their head down and ignore the gangs around them and just get on with life. They can't. That's right. It's, it's it pervades their lives. And think about if you're a parent and you've got children and the gang life, they start recruiting members at the age of 11, 12 years old. And if you don't join, you're often killed. And I'm not talking about young men, just young men. It's women as well. Women will join the gangs or women become sex slaves to the gangs as well. So you can see and, and, and the local police who try to stand up to them, their families become targeted. Mm-hmm. So when the local police go in and try to fight these gangs, quite often they will have their faces covered so that uh, the gang members won't be able to recognize them and their families uh, uh, w- w- will not be attacked by the gang. So you can see that this, this tremendous violence that's taking place throughout the country. And as a result, from El Salvador, now these gangs have also not they're not, they didn't just go back to El Salvador. They spread to Honduras, Guatemala, the whole northern triangle, as we call them. And these are the three countries that are fueling uh, the immigration issues that we're seeing today. But it's not young men coming. To the United these are families mm-hmm. trying to escape the violence that their government can't control. But nonetheless, they, they, they're wanting out. And, yeah. I, you know, th- this, this is a situation that if you, if you can even 
even try to imagine yourself in that situation, you would pack up and leave with, with just the shirts on your back and try to get out of out of that particular situation. I think it's impossible, literally impossible for most U.S. Americans to be able to imagine that in its um, in its fullest sense. I mean, you can, you know, draw a picture in your head, but, um, you know, to actually have, again, such violent organizations uh, touching your life, even as you, you know, walk to see, you know, walk to see your family member or take a bus to work or whatever, um, you know, and and the threats involved. um, I think most people cannot imagine that. Right. And I think, again, the point that she made, uh, which is important here, and, and, and she discussed about, talked about Americans being naive about their own government's role in many, mm-hmm. many places in the world, is that uh, we're partially to blame for this. We're very partially to blame for this. Uh, so, um, and I think that that will help us in terms of our discussion next week on immigration issues. Is that what yes. We're so that's, uh, um, that is, a <laughs> that is, I guess, our announcement for uh, our next show next week. Um, we are, we are sort of dovetailing uh, these two shows. We wanted to, to give you Carolyn Forche's uh, interview with us, um, but then also build on that um, to address immigration, which is obviously, um, you know, a very important topic uh, in the U S today. As always, we are going to keep, um, keep our focus on the international, but, uh, it is a intermestic issue, which one that touches both international and domestic policies, um, and something that's very important. And we've we've you know talked about it in, in bits and pieces before, but it um, it would be good to uh, devote a you know time for a, a deep conversation, um, especially with you know more on what's going on. Uh, in and, I, and I do strongly Australia. recommend that if if this interests you to please read her book if it's really well done and she talked about how painful it must have been and i i can't imagine because the book you know she read the 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 uh poem the colonel that scene is actually discussed in great detail in the book and uh for americans to even begin to comprehend what uh what what el salvador went through is just it's just unbelievable and that this book does a good job of at least opening your eyes yeah, um, I think, and and we can get into um, you know the connections to the U.S. more, but I think as as you know citizens of the U.S. and the fact that we do that that our country did have um, you know some responsibility in this, it's a hard read. Um, in the first couple of pages, she tells a, a story and and it ends with uh, you know that is the day I learned how much a human head weighs. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I had to pause at that point when I was reading. Um, you know, it, it's it's a hard read. A lot of it. These are she recounts a lot of experiences that are you know something that I would only see in movies. Um, but I think it's important lucky. for us to be aware of. She was very lucky to get out alive herself. Right? Oh yeah. The scene where she was, you know, racing around in the dark um, with uh, a death death squad following them in their car was. Uh, the stuff movies are made for, as yeah. you said. Yeah. But but very serious, very, very serious. So Yeah. All right. So the International Power Hour will be back next week to talk more about this stuff in greater detail. Thank you for joining us. Um, this is IU Southeast Horizon Radio.